so far in this series, we've been talking about things that it's not about. And two weeks ago, we kicked the series off by talking about how it's not about volunteering, right? Uh, sometimes when we talk, we, or we think about serving within the body of the local church, we think it's about, you know, serving. It's about volunteering, like we volunteer on the PTA or whatever, you know, the, to coach our kids' little league team. But what we said is in light of what Jesus taught, it's not actually about volunteering at all. It's about the reality that the church family is like the body of Christ. And every person in the body of Christ has a role to play and a function to fulfill. And the body of Christ only, only operates at its optimum kind of like the physical body, when every part is doing its part. And so we invited everybody here who's part of this church family, the body of Christ here at Heartland, to, to play your part. And we said, if you haven't done that yet, it's really easy to get signed up. All you have to do is send a text with the words, go team, to the number 33777. And if you're not currently on the team, if you're not yet functioning as the part in the body of Christ that you've been called and designed to, and equipped to be, we want to invite you to do that, to send that, that text today and to get signed up. Then last week, we looked at, at the topic of, of money and finances, and we said that Jesus talks more about money than any other topic, any, any other subject at all. Jesus spent more time trying to unpack money for people because so many people don't get this part of their life right. So many people walk around with financial struggles and burdens, living paycheck to paycheck and, and feeling anxiety and stress and fear about the future. And Jesus said, it doesn't have to be that way. I want to help you get this right. And so last week we looked at a passage in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says very clearly, he says, listen, it's not about the money. It's about your heart. And so the key we said last week to understanding that everything, the key to understanding everything Jesus taught on money is to understand all those times he talks about money. He's not really talking about money at all. He's talking about our hearts and what's going on inside of us. And today I want to pick up where we left things off last week again because he had so much to say, because it was so rich and because it was so applicable to our lives and because it will be so helpful for those of us who want to apply Jesus' teaching to this part of our life. And so we're going to kind of pick up with one of the things that Jesus taught on, on our finances and our money. And then next week we'll move on to a completely different topic as we bring this chapter of our ministry to a close. Today, to see this thing that Jesus taught about our finances, and what, one of the things that's really interesting about Jesus' teaching on the finances was even though he taught a, a huge amount of time spent teaching about money, it's not like Jesus had 75 different things that he wanted us to understand about money. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus spent more time talking about money than any other subject, but really he came back to the same core ideas over and over and over again. And he would tell different stories and different parables. He would give different teachings. He would use different styles to approach the same few core themes, one of which was what we saw last week, that it's not about our money, it's about our hearts. And, and, and then today, as I said, I want us to look at one of these other themes. Now to see it, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 16. Luke was a physician who records this moment, this conversation that Jesus has. Jesus, we're told, is surrounded by a group of tax collectors and other notorious sinners. And then a group of Pharisees, a group of the religious elite, see Jesus talking to them and teaching them. And they're curious. They want to know what Jesus is telling them. So they approach Jesus as well. And so now we find Jesus, when we pick up the scene in Luke Luke 16, chapter 1, with Jesus surrounded by a group of tax collectors and other notorious sinners, as well as the religious leaders of their day. And with that context kind of setting the stage, we're going to pick up the story and see what Jesus has to say in this parable, uh, beginning in verse 1. 
Luke 16, 1, Jesus tells the parable. He says, there was a rich man, okay? There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in, he called the manager in, and he asked, the, asked him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Okay, now again, this is a parable. This was a fictional story that Jesus was telling to drive home his point, the point that he's going to get to, the thing that he highlighted so many times. But right off the bat, you can picture this scene. Right? You can imagine the setting. Jesus was such a brilliant storyteller. So Jesus says, imagine a rich man who's hired a manager to help manage his estate. Right? Now, we get that. We understand that because this guy probably helped pay the bills. He probably stayed on top of the books. He probably functioned as an accountant. Maybe he helped file his taxes. I mean, all of this is understandable, but can we just pause and, and acknowledge like how crazy this must have been? Like how rich this guy must have been? Can you believe that there was a time in history 2,000 years ago when people had so much money, they actually had to hire other people to help them manage it? Can you believe that some people had so much money, they had to hire like financial advisors who would give their opinion and tell them, you've got so much money, here's what I think you should do with it. Can you believe that? Can you believe that there were people who, who had so much money, they had to pay other people to, to help buy stocks and bonds and invest in mutual funds? Can you imagine this happening today? Like, could you believe that there was people who had so much money, their, their taxes were so complicated, they had to pay a professional to do their taxes for them? I mean, what? Wow. But there was a time, apparently, when some people were so rich, they had to get other people involved in the management of their money. That's the person that Jesus is talking about here. So this rich guy finds out that his manager has not been efficient with his funds. Notice that it, this manager was accused of wasting his money. He, he was not like just straight up stealing from his, his, his rich uh, employer. Okay? It was, this was not like he's completely ripping the guy off. He's just being inefficient. He's being wasteful. What does that mean? Well, he probably was not paying attention to the little details. He probably was not paying attention to the small accounts. He was letting little bits of money here and there slip through the cracks, and he wasn't too worried about it. But it all adds up. And wealthy people do not become wealthy by being wasteful. Most rich people are extremely careful with every single dollar that comes their way. They give every dollar a plan and a purpose, and they don't build wealth by wasting it. And so this rich man must have found out that his manager was accused of wasting his, his money, and this must have driven him nuts, right? He's obviously not going to just sit around and let it keep happening. So he calls his manager in and he says, listen, I want a full account. I want a full report of what you've been doing. I want to know what my debts and liabilities are. I want to see the revenue stream and what's been coming in. I want to know where you've been putting it. I want you to account with me for every single dollar you've been managing. You know what? I'll give you 24 hours to pull these reports together, but at the end of tomorrow afternoon, after you fill me in and catch me up to speed on what's going on, you're done. You're out in the street, man. You are done managing my money. Verse 3, Jesus continues. The manager, who's losing his job, said to himself, Oh no, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. 
So the manager walks out of his employer's office, no doubt in shock. I mean, he wouldn't have seen this coming. Again, it's not like he was outright stealing from his employer to where he must have known in the back of his mind, hey, at some point, like, this is going to catch up to me. At some point, you know, the ploy is going to come, out, come to light and I'm going to be out of a job. That's not the case. He was just being inefficient. He was just being wasteful. So he probably never saw this coming. But now the reality has hit him and he thinks, oh, no. What am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I mean, I have to do something, right? After I give him this report tomorrow afternoon on what's been going on, I'm out on the street. How am I going to survive? And the manager realizes that he has limited time and limited opportunity. And he thinks to himself, okay, what can I do with my limited time and with my limited opportunity that will set me up for my future? I've got 24 hours. What can I do in the next 24 hours that will, that will prepare me for what's next? In verse 4, we find out. He says, I know what I'll do. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, other people will welcome me into their houses. So he comes up with a plan. And he says, okay, I've got to think this through. I've got limited time. I've got limited opportunity. But I've got to leverage the limited time and limited opportunity I have today for the next chapter in my life. Now, I wish this chapter wasn't coming to a close, but it is. I didn't have any control over that. I didn't have any say over when this chapter of my life would come to an end. But the least that I can do, the wise thing for me to do, would be to take advantage of my limited time and my limited opportunity in this chapter of my life to at least prepare me for the next chapter of my life so that when I'm out of this house, other people will invite me into theirs. And then we find out how he goes about executing this plan in verse 5. Verse 5, we read, So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. What? Jesus, the people in your stories are not usually shady, right? Uh, but yeah, the manager called in one of his boss's clients, and he said, Hey, what do you owe my boss? And the guy said, I owe your boss 800 gallons of olive oil. In real life terms, this would be the equivalent of the annual output of about 450 olive trees. That was a lot of money. This was a huge account. And the manager tells the person, hey, take our contract and add an amendment page at the end that slashes your bill from 800 gallons to 400 gallons. But listen, do it quickly. I'll sign it. Let's get on with this. The client must have been thrilled. Are you serious? I mean, that's great. Thank you so much. I mean, hey, man, listen, if you ever find yourself in need, give me a call. Like, I owe you one, right? And the manager's going, oh, okay, well, hey, you know, I appreciate that. I, I just might do that someday. Someday down the road, I may, I may come calling on you to return this favor. Verse 7, then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he does it again. He does the exact same thing that he had done with the olive oil guy. He says, how much do you owe my boss? The answer was a thousand bushels of wheat. For those of you who are curious about little details that don't really matter, the way I'm curious about little details that don't really matter, this would be the annual output of about a hundred acres. Okay, this again would have been a very large operation for their culture, but also very realistic, very possible. So the manager says, okay, hey, you know what, man? You owe him, you owe him a thousand bushels of wheat. But you and I, we go way back, don't we? Yeah, we go way back, and, and we've always gotten along, haven't we? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've always liked you. I've always liked doing business with you. You've always been an upright person. And you know what? I'm going to declare today Cyber Monday. And you know, I think it's a concept that'll catch on. And uh, so here's what I'm going to do. I want you to take your bill. I want you to slash it by 20%, right? 20% off the entire store today. Take it, make it 800. But listen, man, do it quickly. Again, this debtor would have been thrilled. He's going, are you kidding me? That's awesome. What? Hey, uh, hey, happy to do it, man. Yeah, you're right. We've always gotten along great. You know, I've always loved you. I've always been a big fan. You know what? If you ever find yourself in need, man, you just pick up the phone. You give me a call. I'll help you out. I will be happy to return the favor because this is such a huge deal for me. Such a windfall, man. Hey, I am forever indebted to you. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I, you know, I appreciate that. Now, we don't know how many times, or we don't know how many more times he does this, but in verse 5, which we read a second ago, we're told that the manager called in each of his master's debtors. A rich man in this society could have had dozens of accounts. He could have had dozens of debtors, and we're told that the, ma the manager does this with every single one of them. Obviously, when the boss finds out, he is going to be furious, I mean, he's already mad that, about the losses he's taken from this manager just being wasteful. When he finds out that the manager has gone behind his back and cut deals with people that would set him up for the future, that would, that would serve him well at the expense of tens or maybe in today's terms, even hundreds of thousands of dollars, he is going to be livid. And at this point in Jesus' story, people are no doubt leaning in, waiting to hear what Jesus says the, the master does when he finds out what the manager has done. Right? You've got everybody just leaning in. And Jesus says, not what people are expecting. Right, Everybody is expecting that this master, this rich man, is going to have him thrown in prison. But Jesus says that's not how he responds. Instead, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. The master laughs. He gets it. He stops and he thinks to himself for a moment and after it has time to settle in what this, what this money manager has done, he thinks to himself, you know what? That was pretty shrewd. Now shrewd is not a term that we use today in our culture very much, but shrewd simply means to be savvy. It means to be intentional. It means to be smart, kind of street smart. It means to think through now and our actions today with the end in mind, to kind of play it out. That's what it means to be shrewd. And this rich master thinks to himself, he goes, you know what? I have to give him credit. That was pretty shrewd. He goes, I'm a shrewd businessman myself. Apparently, my money manager has learned a thing or two from working with me all these years. You know, he was shrewd. When he had limited opportunity, he leveraged it like, like, he, like he could for his own benefit. And you know what? That's exactly what I did. He kind of thinks back on his own career, and he's got a little, a little smile on his face. And he thinks, you know what? When I only had a little bit of opportunity, that's exactly what I did. I leveraged it hard, and I built that limited opportunity into a huge fortune. And today, I have more money than I could ever spend in this lifetime. So you know what? Go on, man. Get out of here. You're still fired, no doubt about that. But I'm not calling the police on you. Just, just go on. Get out of here. And half of Jesus' crowd who was listening to this parable that day would have been thrilled at this, at this response by the rich master. Right? The tax collectors and the, and the, the quote-unquote notorious sinners would have been loving that this guy got away with it. But the Pharisees, who were told later on in verse 14 that they loved money, the Pharisees would have been hating this response. But it's about to get even worse for the Pharisees. 
Because Jesus is about to give us two incredibly important things in this parable. Jesus is about to give us an insight, and then he's about to give us an application. Anytime you read a parable from Jesus, you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? What's Jesus' point? And what's the application for our life? Well, in this parable, Jesus gives us the insight and the application. But you have to stay with me here because this gets kind of complicated. This gets kind of confusing. Again, this is one of the most confusing parables Jesus has ever, ever shared. In verse 8, though, he gives us the insight when he says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I told you this was going to be a little bit confusing, right? I warned you. Jesus is comparing two sets of people here, obviously, right? He's comparing the people of the world and people of light, children of the world, children of the light. So who is he talking about here? Well, this is not a trick you know, question. This is not a, 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 a trick statement. The children of the light are the followers of God are the people of God. The children of light or the people of light are all of the people who have received the light of the world. Those are the people who have become in some ways a light to the world around them. All of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, we are the children of light in this parable. The people of the world, on the other hand, are the people who, who want nothing to do with God. And Jesus says the people of this world The non-religious people, they tend to be more shrewd in dealing with their own than religious people are. Well, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked because I spent a tremendous amount of time researching this this week and I'm excited to tell you what it means. This is actually a fascinating insight. But Jesus was saying that the people of this world tend to be more savvy about things of this world, their world, than children of the light tend to be with things of their world, which is the next world. Right? He was making the point that people who want nothing to do with God, their whole world, their whole life, their whole existence is focused and consumed with this world. And he was saying those people tend to be more intentional and tend to be more wise with this world than the children of light are, than the followers of God are with the next world where we should live, where we should, where our focus and our attention and our life should be all about all of eternity. But he says, The people of the world tend to be more wise about their own than the children of light are about their own, which is the next world. Now, this is an important insight because it sets up the application that Jesus is about to give us, which is equally confusing. But it's important to understand this insight because what Jesus was saying was was he was saying, listen, that ought not be. He's saying it doesn't need to be that way. He's saying people who follow me Children of the light, people of the light, you do not need to be ignorant about the next world. Like just as savvy and as intentional as people of the world are about this world, you can be that savvy about the next world. And now he's about to tell us how in the application. And so let's look at this in verse 9. Again, one of these crazy statements. Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. So that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Wow. What? As my grandpa used to say, this is a real head scratcher. So let me summarize it for you. Let me give you kind of the summary statement of this entire parable, Jesus' entire point, And then we'll walk back through it section by section and try to break this one statement down. 
The summary is that when it comes to money, it's not about today, it's about eternity. In the language of this series, it's not about the point that Jesus was trying to make was when it comes to our money, it is not about today. For people who follow Jesus, it is all about eternity. The takeaway from Jesus is that what we do with our money today, while we still have some limited time and some limited opportunity, what we do with it today has repercussions that will last for all of eternity. This was one of the fundamental themes that Jesus taught as it related to money, that, that, that this should become a lens through which we manage every single dollar that comes our way. And so again, let's look at this kind of verse or this statement by Jesus piece by piece. He begins by saying, I tell you, right? Jesus wanted to make clear that this, the parable's over. He wanted to make clear this was not still the rich master talking. This is not the money manager talking. Jesus wanted to be very clear that he's like, this is my point now. I tell you, in light of this story, let me just tell you how to manage your money today. He's like, this is me. This is God's insight into money. I want you, God wants you to use worldly wealth. What is that? Well, that's our money, right? That's our finances. Again, this is not a trick question. He says, I want you, God wants you to, to use your worldly wealth, use your, your possessions, your belongings, your material wealth, use worldly wealth for what end? He, he says, use it to gain friends for yourselves. Now, this is where it gets even a bit more obscure because you have to think that through a little bit. You know, Jesus, what do you mean you want us to use our money to gain friends for ourselves? Like, are you suggesting that we should somehow use our money to just buy a bunch of friends who will ride along with us until the money runs out? Like, this is coming on the heels of the story of the prodigal son who, like, wasted his father's money, like, you know, in extravagant living. He had all the friends until the money ran out. Is Jesus, is that what you want us to do? Do you want us to just pay for the, the lifestyle of people of this world and, you know, make friends for ourselves in that context? No, of course not. Of course that's not what he means. People like that, people who want nothing to do with God, wouldn't be there on the other side of eternity to welcome you into eternity. So that can't mean the type of friends that he's talking about. And it just makes sense that there would be nobody on the other side of eternity waiting to welcome you into eternity after you've just paid for the destructive lifestyle of people in a way that will only hurt them in the end either. So that's not what he's talking about. So what is Jesus alluding to here? Who, who is he talking about when he says, make friends for yourselves so that, that they'll welcome you into eternity? Well, he's alluding to the fact that we have the opportunity to leverage our money today to bring more people into the kingdom of God. There is a way in which we can handle and leverage our financial resources today to expand the body of Christ, to expand the family of, of believers. There is a way that we can leverage our money to help people who are far from God be awakened to Jesus. And when we do that, when those people cross the line of faith, they become in a very real way our friends for all of eternity. Even if we never meet them, even if, if we never know their name, they become our friends in a way that will last for all of eternity. And so Jesus says, gain friends for yourselves. Make more People make more room at the table. Invite more people to the table. Fill the empty spots at the table. Make friends for yourselves that will welcome you into eternity. Now, maybe when you hear this, one of your immediate reactions is simply think, like maybe you push back and you're like, well, Jesus, that seems kind of self-centered. 
Like, really, you want me to leverage my money to make friends for myself so that it will benefit me for all of eternity? Jesus, isn't that self-centered? And I think Jesus would say, yeah, of course it is, right? Of course, right? Jesus knew that. Jesus wasn't shy about leveraging our self-centeredness. I think Jesus was saying, hey, look, you're all going to be self-centered when it comes to the way that you manage your money, right? You're going you're gonna to be self-centered one way or another. At least be self-serving in a way that will serve you really well for all of eternity, He's saying, don't just hoard a bunch of junk. Use your money to gain friends that will last for all of eternity. He's saying, let's leverage that self-centeredness to do something that will benefit you for all time. And let's leverage it for the good of some other people in the process too. Now, on top of this amazing thought, then Jesus reminds us that we have limited time and limited opportunity to do that. He says, do that. Leverage your money so that you can make friends from the world so that when you're gone, so that when it's gone, really when everything's gone, right? When what's gone, John? Everything. When our time runs out, when our money runs out, when our opportunity runs out, it will all run out for all of us. The trick is, we don't know when that is. We don't know how much time we have left. We don't know how much opportunity that we have left. But while we still have some opportunity, Jesus is inviting us to leverage that opportunity for a way that will benefit us and other people for all of eternity. It does not matter how big or small the amount of money is that you have the opportunity to leverage. It doesn't matter how much time you have left. You could be living in retirement on a social security check, but the principle still applies. You still have a little bit of time and you still have a limited or a little bit of opportunity. And so while we still have time and while we still have opportunity, Jesus is inviting us, he's calling us, he's teaching us to make friends for ourselves, to help expand the body of believers so that it benefits us and them for all time. And Jesus says, when you do that, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Some of those people that come into the family of, of believers are going to pass on before you do. And when, when you do pass on, then they're going to be there waiting for you to welcome you into eternity. When you leverage your financial resources to bring more people into the body of believers, there will be another crew of people excited to see them someday that will be there waiting to welcome you in on their behalf. So Jesus says leverage it to welcome people so that you'll be welcomed into eternity. Now, Maybe you hear this teaching. Maybe you hear Jesus' point in this parable and you wonder, is that an isolated teaching? Right? Is this kind of like one of those obscure parables that we don't really talk too much about? I've never really dissected myself in my own Bible study time, John. Or is this bigger than that? No, it's absolutely bigger than that. This was one of the themes that Jesus came back to over and over and over again. He would repeatedly come back to the fact that when it comes to money, it's not about our money, it's about our heart. And he would repeatedly come back to the fact that what you do with your money in this lifetime has massive repercussions for all of eternity. And so this makes sense that Jesus would encourage us to leverage it for eternity, not today. We would be crazy not to do that. In the big scheme of things, this lifetime is going to last, what, at most maybe 100 years? If that, most of us don't even want it to last 100 years, right? You see somebody who's 100 and you think that doesn't look like much fun, I think I'll check out at 90, right? And so, so, so it would make sense that Jesus would invite us to leverage it for the good of not just these 90 years, but all of eternity, because eternity is going to last like eternity. I, I don't know. 
And so with that in mind, of course, we want to prioritize our eternity over our present. We would be crazy not to. And that's why Jesus came back to this call so often. One of the most straightforward, like this one is a little bit cryptic, like Luke 16. You have to really dig in to understand what Jesus is saying. One of the most straightforward times Jesus says this, you don't have to break it down at all, is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, that passage we looked at last week, we kind of looked at the second half of what Jesus taught about money. The first half, it was this principle. It was this theme that he was unpacking. So let me just show you that again. Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Like it doesn't get any more straightforward than that. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus said, you can store up treasures for yourself on earth. Don't do that. Or you can store up treasures for yourself that will last for all of eternity. You should do that. Now, Jesus taught this 2,000 years ago. I can't think of any passage in Scripture that might be more applicable today than this passage is compared to the original audience. Again, Jesus was teaching this to people who were tempted to store up treasures for themselves on earth. But can you just think for a second about how applicable this is to us as American Christians, right? I mean, when I read this, this passage in Matthew 6 about storing up treasures for ourselves on earth, you know what comes to mind for me? These things. Storage units, right? Right? There is nothing that highlights our propensity to store up treasures for ourselves quite like the storage unit industry does. Now, this week, as I was, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I just want to pull some data. I want some concrete facts on this the storage unit industry. And so let me just share with you how applicable what Jesus said in Matthew 6 is to us today. Okay, despite our homes being the biggest houses the world has ever seen, and despite us having more storage space in our homes than the world has ever had, Americans today spend $36 billion every year renting self-storage units. Did you not hear me? $36 billion. Like, isn't that crazy? The total amount of self-storage space in the United States, get this, 2.3 billion square feet. 2.3 billion square feet of America's soil is dedicated to us storing up treasures for ourselves on this earth. There are twice as many self-storage complexes in the United States today as there are Starbucks and McDonald's combined. Twice as many, not just individual units, twice as many like properties as there are Starbucks and McDonald's combined. And one more fact, 155,000, 155,000 storage units get abandoned every single year because their owners finally realize that all that treasure they've been storing up for themselves is actually worthless. Now listen, I am not the kind of guy, you know this if you've been coming to Heartland, I am not the kind of guy who gets up here every week and just tells you how to live. It's not my MO. That's not, like, that's not my personality. I do my best every week. This is kind of my approach to what I do. My goal is to unpack Scripture in a way that makes sense, 
It's understandable and that has some clear handles for us to apply to our life. That's all that I try to do every week. I never get up here and just tell you how to live, right? But if I may be so bold today, (laughs) if you are currently paying the average rental price of $100 a month to store up a bunch of stuff that you don't ever use or look at and it's just tucked away in some self-storage rental unit somewhere, let me just ask the question. I'm not telling you what to do. But let me just ask the question, might you be better off to sell that stuff or donate that stuff and leverage the money that you have left to to store up treasures for yourself in eternity? Might it be better? I don't know. I don't know. But might, might you be better off doing that? And if you own a storage unit facility... Hey, you go, girl. That was a shrewd financial investment. So you just keep renting those puppies out and you leverage every dollar you can to make friends for yourself for all of eternity. That was, that was a shrewd financial investment. All right. Well, clearly, we have a propensity to store up treasures for ourselves on earth, not in heaven. And yet Jesus calls his followers to do the exact opposite. He said, if you want to know how to get your money right, don't do what everybody around you is doing. That's normal. Don't be normal. Because again, his point was, it's not about today. It's about eternity. And real quickly, in the time that we have left, I won't spend much time doing this. Let me just show you one more parable where Jesus highlights this principle. Just to, just to reinforce the fact that I'm not pulling two passages out to, to make a point. Like Jesus really did come back to this over and over and over again. That it's not about today, it's about eternity. You, what you do with it today has repercussions for eternity. So let me just read you a, another parable real quick in Luke 12. We read that Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And the takeaway, Jesus' point, the point of this parable was, verse 21, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Whew. This one feels harsh. Why did God call him a fool? Was this a bad business plan? No. Was what the guy doing unethical? Absolutely not. Was tearing down his small barns and building bigger barns, was this, you know, a bad real estate move that was foolish? No, not at all. He was a fool because he handled his money like all there is to this life is this life. And he was a fool because he handled his money with the impression that what he did with his money in this lifetime would stay in this lifetime. And Jesus said, that's foolish because how you handle your finances today in this lifetime, it has consequences that will last for all of eternity. And Jesus concludes, this is how it will be for anybody who is not rich towards God. And so the question we have to wrestle to the ground 
is what do we do? How does, how, what does that look like to be rich towards God when it comes to our money? Well, I don't think it was, I don't think it's very complicated. You just give it to him and, and you invest in the spread of the gospel. Now, that's not very complicated, but it's also not very easy. I mean, it's hard to, for the vast majority of people to give their money away. Why is that? Well, I think it goes back to what we talked about last week. It goes back to the fact that it's not about our money. It's about our hearts. And in our hearts, it's easy to trust God with things that we don't really have any control over. And so it's easy to trust God with things like eternity and, and salvation. And it's easy to trust God with our forgiveness. Because we know in our hearts, we don't have any control over that stuff. But it's much, much, much more difficult to trust God with our actual money because we have a level of control over it, or at least we think we do. And so this is why there's such an eternal reward for the people who actually are rich towards God because God applauds the life of faith and generosity. He applauds the life that's lived for eternity rather than the comfort of our present. And I'm so proud to say that so many of you are getting this right today. Over the last 18 months, as we've been raising money to build out a bigger building, I have been so blessed to see so many of you give generously because you know it's not about today, it's about eternity. And because you know that it's not about a building, you know that it's never been about a building and it never will be about a building, but you understand it's about the opportunity that God has placed in our lap to make a bigger eternal impact for him. And so I hope that when you walk through the doors two weeks from today, back into 800 Wilburn Road, when you look around at what all of our financial resources have been able to build out as we pooled our resources together, I hope that you are, you, you are, overwhelmed with a sense of satisfaction and joy. I hope that when you look around that space, that you become emotional about it the way that I become emotional about it as I walk through that space, even before the construction is done. You guys know that I'm an emotional guy. So even now, I walk through the space at 800 Wilburn Road, and I just have tears welling up in my eyes because I'm getting so excited about what God is going to do, changing lives for all of eternity. I get so excited about the eternal investment that so many of you have made and the dividends it will pay, both for you and for people you don't even know, but you are making friends with. And I walk around and tears stream down my face and construction workers look at me like, what a wimp that is. What is he crying about all the time, man? That dude, they just see him. They're like, that's the crying pastor, I think, you know? <laughs> it's just my nickname. And before we open our doors, before we move in there, before we begin that chapter of our ministry together, I want to invite more of you to be a part of that. There is still plenty of time and there is no pressure, there's no obligation, then you can come and never give a dollar. But I want to invite you to be a part of this because I believe what Jesus said is true. I believe that if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and then pull it off, you should probably just go along with everything else they have to say. And Jesus said this over and over and over again, that what you do with your financial resources today bears repercussions for your eternity that will last for all of eternity. And so there are times when I get pretty timid to ask people to support the ministry of Heartland financially. I get shy because I know so many people have baggage when it comes to church and money. And I never want that to be an obstacle for people when they come to Heartland. But in light of the passages that we've just looked at together, I feel like excited to invite you to be a part of it. 
Because I'm not, in, I'm not asking you to do anything that will benefit me. I'm asking you to fund your own eternity. I'm inviting you to invest in the spread of the gospel. I'm inviting you to take tangible steps to be rich towards God. It's not hard to do. It's, it's not complicated. It can be difficult to break that bond of, of, of money's grip on our hearts, but it's not complicated. In fact, every year we do an end-of-the-year giving initiative where we just invite the church, everybody who's a part of this church, everybody who benefits from this ministry, everybody who's a part of it, we invite you to make an end-of-the-year contribution to say, you know what, as we come to the end of the year, as I'm looking at my finances, as my tax person's looking at my finances, because I'm so rich, I got a tax person, right? We invite you to do this. And I want to invite you to do it as well. We're going to be in this deep and wide kind of season of ministry until May of 2020. So there is still plenty of time. But even as we approach the end of the year, would you consider making a special contribution to what God is doing here, knowing it's not about today and it's not about the money. It's about eternity. It's about investing in the lives of some other people who you may not ever even meet, but you will meet them someday when you cross from this life into the next life. And you find out, man, I've made some friends that are going to last for all of eternity. Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to be rich towards God? It's not easy, but it's also not complicated. You just write the check. It's pretty simple. So let's do that. Let's be people who live for eternity, not today. Let's be people who live for other people, not ourselves. Let's be people who understand we get to the opportunity and the blessing to, to, to invest in their life and in their eternity. And let's change our community the way that God has been changing communities for thousands of years. Let's join in with that. And let's store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, not in some dusty old storage unit. Let me pray for you and we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you for this insight into money and our lives. God, this, this teaching, this, these passages has such enormous bearing on how we live our lives day in and day out. Maybe this weekend more than any other weekend of the year bookended by Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And so Lord, while we are no doubt going to be buying some things and storing up some treasures for ourselves and our family and our friends and our loved ones. God, at the same time, would we take seriously this call to store up treasures for ourselves in eternity and to be rich towards you? Lord, would our lives be glorifying to you and liberating for other people as we make friends for all of eternity? It's in Jesus' name that we pray and everybody who agreed with this prayer said, Amen. Have a great rest of your weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week for the last Sunday at Chums. See you.